You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're thankful in your mercy that you brought us together on this Lord's Day. And you have fed us, as you always do, with the weekly remembrance that you faced death and conquered it and have risen again, and that you've drawn us into that most intimate of fellowships with your very self. And we're grateful. Let it shape our identity. Let it give us a sense of some handle as we enter into this world around us and try to make sense of of the complexities of our existence. And I pray that even today, as we press into the parables again, Jesus, you're a challenge, and we know that about you. You don't, don't always come to make things easy. You come to challenge. And even these parables themselves, that your, your chosen form of teaching, Lord, is, is itself a kind of residual challenge of faith. And I pray that you'll help us today to be able to engage thoughtfully and well and with humility, open to what your word would have to speak. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on in. We've got some chairs over here. and Hi, Glenda. Tim. You guys get the two front row. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So today... Um, we're doing the parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, didn't, didn't really plan on um, the parable having, and our discussion of the parable today, having such a direct connection with our sermon. But I think as you'll see as we go along, it will, and that's a real kindness, I think, of God's providence this morning. So what I'd like to do is read the parable to you in Luke chapter 10, and I want to take two passes at it. That's my plan this morning. Kind of give a sort of general pass at the parable. And then I want to go through it again, allowing a certain interpreter to kind of help to hold my hand as we work through these parables. And I should say, even before we dive in, that I this week especially, wrestling with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, if anything, is its own kind of challenge because of its over-familiarity. We know this parable so well. Um, but what it's really getting after is still a, is still a, a matter of continued uh, dispute. And again, that's the nature of these parables as indirect communication. Jesus is not just giving us propositional statements. He's he's lowering guards and he's countering questions and he's countering assumptions and he's causing us to enter into a narrative world that brings our own very basic view of the world into into question into challenge. Um, so this week, as I was preparing for this parable. And um, and spent a lot of time with this thing. It was kind of fun, and I still kind of came in. Or I'm still coming in this morning a bit uneasy to it. And and on one level, that's because the nature of these parables and their interpretation, I believe, is that they're not sealed off. I mean, I think we're going to continue to wrestle with these things again and again. So in a couple of years, we'll do the parables again if um, I haven't been fired yet. Um, so let me let me read uh, Luke chapter 10 uh, to you, uh, verses 25 through 37. Jesus had just in the previous verses sent 72 of his disciples out throughout the region to bring uh, the message of, of the kingdom of God. And, and they've all come back really happy about their time away. 
Uh, we didn't believe it, but we cast demons out and they listened to us. And Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So we're, we're getting a sense of this, this apocalyptic vision of the first part of Luke chapter 10 is a vision that's being clearly demonstrated in Jesus and his disciples, many of whom their, their names we don't even know. They've, they've gone out with the power of God and the power of the kingdom to do wonders in the region. That's, that's the setting. And then uh, Jesus has this encounter again with a lawyer. All right. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, there's what you think as I read this to you, there are two rounds of questioning in this parabolic interaction. Round number one, the lawyer asks a question. Jesus answers. The lawyer asks another question. And then Jesus answers. And then round number two, which begins with a particular phrase that we'll really lean into this morning. The lawyer wishing to justify himself. Then he asks another question. This is now round two in the parable. And, uh, and then Jesus kind of goes back and forth. So this is, there's a couple of rounds here. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, these are loaded questions. Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied. And I, I love this, by the way. Uh, I do think Jesus is being naughty here, but I have to be careful not to read too much into this. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And he answered the, the lawyer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. Now this is round number two. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to, to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, of course, these are the religious elite. These are those who are the bearers of the traditions of Israel, the central. Um, I won't have time to talk about this this morning, but one of the New Testament scholars that I had a, the privilege of studying under Richard Balkum, uh in St. Andrews uh, wrote a really fascinating article. I won't follow this line of interpretation, by the way, but I'll just mention it to you as an aside. Richard Balkum made a very interesting argument that what's going on here is a kind of playing of the love commandment as the commandment by which all other commandments are to be understood, namely the halakhic tradition of applying the law to new moments. In other words, the Levites and the priests really weren't supposed to touch things that might be dead. All right, so that, that, that would contaminate their ability to do temple business. Um, so when so the, the the story here that Jesus is presenting, um, it's got multiple layers to it. In other words, for a Levite and a priest to touch uh, what could be a dead corpse was to render them inoperative in the calling that they had by the nature of the law itself. 
Um, so Jesus is really going after the jugular here. He's, he's, he's complicating all kinds of religious traditions that are present here. Uh, religious traditions that people would have assumed. Of course a Levite and a priest should not touch something that's dead. They have more important things to do. right? It's the ordering of law-keeping here. Um, so I, I'm not going to follow that, but at least as a kind of aside, you might find that of some interest. So a, a priest... Happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came, the scribe, he came to the place, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side as well. But then a Samaritan, oh Jesus, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, just as, again, another aside, I was trying to read a monograph this week on this, on the whole history of the Samaritans. where, Where do they come from? You know, this is a real problem. Um, we're not completely sure about the whole history of the Samaritans. Now, the teaching of Josephus, just as an aside, in the first century, was that the, the uh, Samaritans were Assyrian deportees uh, who had come into the region from Assyria all the way back probably in, say, the, the ninth and 8th century. Um, uh, the, the, the argument that people have made that seem to have stuck more than any is that the Samaritans were the leftovers of the northern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians, and then uh, many of them were exiled. Either they came to the south, to Jerusalem, or they went to Assyria. Um, Some remained around, and so the argument is that there's a kind of direct line of the Samaritans back to the leftover tribes of the northern kingdom. Um, who then got all sort of mixed up in mixed marriages and ethnicity became problematic, as it did all throughout Israel, not just the northern kingdom. And so that's one particular thesis that's there. There's other theses that are out as well. The point is we really don't know clearly the history and the origin of the Samaritans per se. Um, the, the tribes of the northern kingdom or some leftover of, of Israel after the exile, maybe. But what we do know is that they had a specific theological identity that was there in the northern area of Israel as we know it now, and they understood on the basis of the teaching of Moses that worship was to be take, was to take place at Mount Gerizim, not down at Jerusalem. Now, of course, you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, any kind of northern sensibility that would place the center of worship in the north and not in Jerusalem was forbidden in the Old Testament from beginning to end. So the southern perspective of the Old Testament is assumed from Genesis chapter 1 to the maps, right? Jerusalem is the center of the world, but this is a live theological debate. I should also say, by the way, that I think there is an understanding out there that that the uh, Samaritans were necessarily syncretistic. In other words, they had blended Yahweh worship, Jehovah worship, with other kinds of worship as well. And actually, there's no evidence for that. They they were most likely exclusive monotheists, worshiping Yahweh alone, and we actually get insight into a live theological debate between those who would share a similar creed in the sense of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. So we get a kind of insight in the New Testament with a lot of information that we need to understand more fully that's just not there. That there's a kind of internecine theological debate and, and religious identity debate between the Samaritans and those in Jerusalem And we see Jesus having interactions with Samaritans all the time. And here's the big point about the question about the neighbor here. And Jesus seems to be quite positive toward them. And he shouldn't be. 
you remember John chapter 4, right? I mean, Jesus tells the disciples, before we go all the way up to Galilee, we need to go through Samaria. And they're like, can't we go around? I mean, is that really necessary that we go through? And Jesus is like, it's necessary that we go through Samaria. And we now know, we now know from the providence of God, as revealed in John 4, that Jesus needed to meet a woman there. So you think about what, what Jesus is doing in the Gospels is he's announcing the kingdom of God among us. And he's having table fellowship, which was central to the kingdom of God's presence and coming. We find that in the prophets. He's having kingdom of God table fellowship with all the wrong people. And that's why the lawyer here is testing him. Who is my neighbor? So what we have going on here, there's multiple layers of of, of challenge and, and complexity and religious identity and debate that's going on in this little interaction that on the surface seems quite innocent. So who is my neighbor? It's not innocent. This is loaded from beginning to end. All right. So a Samaritan, uh, when he, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took a pity on him. And he uh, went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured oil and wine. And then the, he put the man on his donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave him to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus just puts it to him. So what of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And then the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, I want to take two passes at this with the time that we have remaining. Okay, two passes. Um, I'm sorry I got my computer here. My, my printer, um, the devil got it this morning. Um, the, the lawyer has asked two questions. The first question that he asked is, who is my neighbor or how can we inherit eternal life? And the second question that he has asked is, who is my neighbor? Just in the previous few chapters, Jesus has identified himself with eternal life. Uh, leaving all, picking up your cross, and following me. Jesus has redefined and resignified the whole notion of what it means to be a true and faithful Israelite. Those who will have and inherit eternal life are those who are following me. So the question that this um, lawyer is asking about inheriting eternal life, he already knows that Jesus has redefined that whole question and that answer. John 17, verse 3, on the high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son whom He has sent. There's no eternal life apart from the knowledge of the Son. So he asked that question, how do we have an eternal life? And then the second question that he asks is, who is my neighbor? Here we have a clear distinction in this world between the righteous and the unrighteous in table fellowship, and Jesus is being tested. And here's the really pointed part, I think, of this parable that has um, challenged me as well, as I'm sure it will you. The fact that this lawyer has to ask, who is my neighbor, reveals that he's already heading down the wrong trail. Because the neighbor is anyone who stands in need of mercy. The Samaritan. The religiously other. The one who's distinct from us. And of course, um, I'll say this as an aside because my kids are always challenging me on this. But, um, you know, I, I have a child um, who 
uh, find some comfort in the identification of groups into particular uh, tribes and classes. And this, you, know, you see it in school. They're the athletes. We're the geeks. We're the music. You know, this kind of thing. And that's a very much part of being a kid. Um, this is what Jesus is leaning into here, to here. The sort of notion of identifying the other in such a way as to, fi- as to put ourselves in a posture of self-justification and self-gratification. Um, all right, let's, get, let's, let's turn our gaze inward for a moment on these matters. We are, we're all predisposed to do this. Um, I, I, I marvel at my own ability. Maybe you do as well. I marvel at my own ability to assume that the posture from which I engage any social or religious or athletic or whatever scenario it might be, I I can astonish myself with my ability to assume that my viewpoint on these things is just right. Right. Um, And they are the other. I mean, we want to live, don't we, in a um, Lone Ranger world where that's white and then all the bad people are wearing the black and we can just keep it kind of clear, a kind of Christmas story approach to existence. Um, Jesus is leaning into that. Okay. Um, so the fact that he asked the question means that he's heading down, heading down the wrong trail because the neighbor is anyone who stands in need of mercy. Again, this is something I can't pursue too much, but Richard Hayes wrote a very good book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. He applies this parable, by the way, to the, to the ethical issue of abortion. And this is what he says. There's always a danger of circumscribing our own moral concern by defining the other as belonging to a category that's outside the scope of our obligation. Let me read that one more time because that's loaded. I had to read it three times myself. The danger of circumscribing our own moral concern by defining the other as belonging to a category outside the scope of our obligation. So here's what I would think might be a good thesis statement for our understanding, and this is a danger of reduction here, but here's a nice thesis statement I think maybe for the parable as a whole. Mercy can only be shown by those who know that they have been shown mercy. They know how to answer rightly the identity and the character of God identified in the first table of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And we're going to get back to this. this I want to take another pass. Um, this question about justifying ourselves. Um, Karl Barth has a reading on the, on the parable here that um, I got lost in this week. So I'm going to Pass on to you that which I have received. Okay. Bart says, and, and, and there are some interpreters who would say this is, a, this is heading down a wrong approach to interpreting parables. So I, I want to be, be fair with this. But Bart raises the question, isn't it fascinating, number one, that he asked the question, who is my neighbor? That's not the right question to ask. Um, you, you know the old statement that teachers often say to students, it, it never hurts to ask. Um, that's not true, right? <laughs> uh, um, uh, anyway, um, sometimes it does hurt to ask. So he, he asked the wrong question, and Jesus is going to point that out to him. But do you notice what question he doesn't ask? Now, I know this is an interpretation by silence, by the gaps. But do you notice what question he doesn't ask? He doesn't ask, and who is God, and how do I worship him? You see, that was the first answer, and he answered rightly. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. The answer was the Shema. By the way, when the tables were reversed and the Pharisees asked Jesus that question to test Him, He answered the same way. Jesus, what's the most important law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then Jesus said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a photo finish. You can't have the one without the other. You can't have mercy. You cannot have an understanding of loving your neighbor and what it means to engage the other if the first table of the law, if the loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, if that's not clarified first, that's a matter of first importance. And the lawyer here doesn't ask that question. He doesn't ask. And by the way, what does it mean to worship God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind? Karl Barth says that this man who knows how to recite the law so well understands none of it. Really leans into this. And this is why I think, by the way, the question about him not asking who God is and how is God to be worshipped is central to interpreting this is because of the scene that comes right after it. Oh, I closed my Bible. But this... and I could be wrong on this. I'm going to give you. I might be wrong on this interpretation here. I didn't read anybody talking about this this week in all the literature that I was reading and preparing. But I think something's here. Why the next scene after the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's a familiar one. I'm going to read it to you. This is what happens right after Jesus says, "Go and do likewise." Next verse. And Jesus and his disciples went on their way, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Verse 41. My my mother's name is Martha, by the way. I use this line all the time. Martha, Martha. I do it all the time. Martha, Martha. No, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about so many things, but few things are really needed, or indeed, only one. Oh, you hear that? Only one? The Lord our God is... There's a lot going on here. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. In other words, I I think there's a reason to the canonical shaping of Luke 10 here. I think the the fact that this Mary-Martha interchange with Jesus comes right on the heels of the parable of the Good Samaritan is telling us something about the lawyer who put Jesus to the test. He, He didn't ask the right question. He didn't come with what was first and most important. And Mary chose it. And what is that? To worship the One. To worship Him. To worship Him truly. Um, the, the, the lawyer didn't recognize that the genuine Good Samaritan was incarnate and standing before Him. Worthy of complete worship. We do not know what it is to have mercy to others if we first do not know who God is and the identity of our God and His giving of Himself uh, to His people. Who is God? He wished to justify Himself. This is what Bart says, if I can read you a quote. The lawyer does not know that only by mercy can he live and inherit eternal life. He cannot justify himself. And it's a, cha- it's, a, it's a technical term here. Those of you who have done some reading, say, in Paul's doctrine of justification, this is a dikaiosune Greek term here. To justify himself. He did not know that, um, uh, he did not know that to be justified was to live only by mercy. And he doesn't even know what mercy is. That's why this parable is such a slap in the face. 
He actually lives by something quite different from mercy. This is what the lawyer is living by, by his own intention and his ability to present himself as a righteous man before God. And he's asking this question to justify himself. And I should say, this this dawned on me, it sort of hit me this week thinking about this parable. I don't think there's any reason to read into this a kind of smug arrogance of self-righteousness and self-congratulation with the with this person, uh, lawyer, asking the question. Now, maybe it's there, but I don't think there's any reason to. W- what's a parallel story in Jesus' life that might mirror this one on some level? The rich young ruler, right? I mean, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says... Um, uh, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, keep the law. And then the rich young ruler says, well, I've, I've done that since my youth. And, I, and again, I don't think the rich young ruler is is uh, is being dishonest from the best of his, his ability. I, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've kept the sacrificial purity system. I've, I've done it all my whole life. I, I've kept the law, at least the surface level of the law and its basic statements about what to do and not to do. A basic mode of being. And then Jesus, like this lawyer here, needs to teach him a lesson about the real intent of the law that opens us and exposes us to the truth of our own selves. And he says, well, that, okay, um, go and sell everything that you have and then follow me. And do you remember, uh, this is a very, I think, poignant line in the Gospels. And the, and the young man left what? Grieved. Because he knew he had many things. And as the lawyer here is living in the religious identity that he understands in his world. And he's asking a question that might be insincere, and then again, might not be insincere. Really wanting to justify himself. Really wanting to know, am I secure? Am I a righteous one? Am I a one who is worthy to have table fellowship at the kingdom of God? Because Jesus, you haven't invited me to the table fellowship, but you seem to be having sinners and whores. It's what he's doing. So why, why not me with table fellowship wishing to justify himself? And Jesus is here to reveal his true, his true knowledge. Self-righteousness and lack of knowledge of God's revelation go hand in hand. So, a few things here uh, in conclusion. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Micah chapter six verse eight is a good is the good Samaritan verse of the Old Testament. He has shown you, O people, what's good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice and mercy—that's what the Samaritan is doing. This um, he is showing his neighbor justice and mercy, and that's the essence of what Micah is getting after in Micah chapter six verse eight. But you know what's so beautiful? Micah chapter 6, verse 8, linked into its larger context, tells us that there's no way to get into Micah 6, verse 8 if Israel doesn't remember first and foremost that she has been the object of God's mercy. There is no mercy shown apart from the fact of recognizing that we are ourselves identified as the objects of mercy. And here's where I think is the the neurologic point, the, the, the raw nerve of the parable of the Good Samaritan. There is no self-justification. There is no seeking to justify oneself for those whose identity is, I'm a person who's been shown mercy. That's who I am. 
I'm one who's received mercy. And because I've received mercy, mercy then flows out to others in an act of freedom and love. That's the only way that we even move toward the love of our neighbor, toward those who are in need. Remember Carl, I mean, uh, Martin Luther's famous line, God does not need your good works, but your neighbors do. Right. So, um, this is the challenge, I think, to understand first and foremost that we've been redeemed, that we've been the recipients of mercy that then open us up to give mercy to others. Another pair, another scene that I wanted to read this in light of is there in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus, and I find this, this text frightening, right? Um, Jesus says that, you know, he separated the sheep and the goats and he, and he said to this one group, you depart from me and because you never fed me, you never clothed me, you never gave me anything to drink. And then they say to him, well, when didn't we do that, Lord? And he said, when you didn't feed the hungry, when you didn't give uh, water to the thirsty, when you didn't clothe the naked, you were, you were doing those things to me. Depart from me. Well, then he has this next interlocution with the other group. Um, enter into the joy of your reward because you clothed me, you fed me, and you, and you gave me something to drink. And do you, this is the part that's so kind of stunning here. Do you remember their response as well? When did we do that, Lord? See, it's the same question that comes from the first group. I don't quite remember doing that. Um, in other words, I love that scene because there, there's no... Um, Cub Scout badges in heaven, you know, where you're like, hey, uh, you know, nice, uh, nice crown there. Look at mine. I mean, it's, 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 it's an absurdity. When did we do that for you, Lord? Well, you did it when you clothed the the, naked, the naked and you fed the hungry and you gave water to the thirsty and and you didn't know this, but when you were doing that to these folks, you were doing it. To me, when you were when you were entering into the role of the good Samaritan, you were doing that for me. But that's and again, it links to the sermon that we heard this morning from Zach. The, the beauty, I think, the unstated point of that scene in Matthew 25 is they did it because it was a part of their identity, not a kind of self-conscious act of I'm now going to force myself to do this. Because those who are the objects of mercy by God's grace are those who are freed to then show mercy to others, and it's never in an effort to justify ourselves. I think one of the most succinct and beautiful statements to this day on the question about good works, mercy ministry, when you use that kind of terminology, still comes from our Articles of Religion in the 39 Articles. And I wanted to read to you this morning um, Article 12 one more time. Okay? Albeit, that good works which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. That lawyer who asked the question wanting to justify himself had gone down an infinite road that he would never be able to come back on. Never. We, we, we cannot set aside God's judgment against sinful humanity and our own sinful selves on the attendance to any good works, as many as you can do. But what about good works then? Yet, they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and a lively faith. In other words, good works spring forth freely 
from those who do good works in faith. But apart from faith, good works do nothing except for elevate your own sense of self-superiority and pride. Whether we have been taught with good manners, right? I mean, and I know so many of you have come from a world of good manners. My kids, we're trying, so, but it's not going you know, hit or miss. Um, and, and what do you do with kids who have good manners, right? I mean, even even like one of my boys who plays baseball and had a decent game yesterday. And I tell him the proverb all the time, let another man praise you, not your own lips. But we all, so we might have good manners, but inside we're hugging ourselves, right? So, so this is not about an outward... I mean, we, we know that if we're doing good works apart from faith, St. Augustine was right so long ago. They, they, it really just serves to increase our own sense of self-superiority and pride. That's what Martin Luther said. Whenever you're feeling really good about yourself and your good works, take a look in the mirror, grab those big donkey ears, and start to rub them. That's, <laughs> Luther had a way, way with words. right? That's what he said. Um, okay, so apart from faith, they don't do anything but to, ex- to ex- exacerbate our own sense of pride. But in faith as those who recognize that they are the objects of mercy, as those who know what it is to say we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind because we know the identity of that God. He's the one that's given Himself to us in self-revelation and redemption. That's our God. And that's our identity. And, And a recognition of that springs forth in lively and free acts of mercy and good works. And this is something that I'm not sure if you're comfortable talking this way. The articles of religion are. But when that happens, are you okay with this? I am. It's pleasing to God. I don't think we need to be scared to talk that way. It makes God happy. When good works usher forth spontaneously from us because we recognize who we are as the objects and the recipients of His grace. The lawyer asked all the wrong kinds of questions. But Mary, in the next scene, enraptured in singular focus on the beauty of her Lord Jesus. Oh, Mary. Mary's choosing the one thing, the right thing, that necessarily springs forth into actions of love and service and the act of the Good Samaritan. Lord, help us with a parable like this. There's so much more here. But help us to appreciate the kind of the kind of good word that it is to us and the challenge to us not to seek to justify ourselves, um, but Lord, to ask the question first and foremost, God, who are you? What's your identity, Jesus? And recognizing that you've been the Good Samaritan, Jesus, to us. The whole church from the beginning to now has really read the Good Samaritan that way. You, Jesus, are the Good Samaritan. You're the one who's found us in a ditch, half dead and You've brought us back to life without any thought of recompense to Yourself. Let that understanding of You, O Jesus, then free us to a lively and a robust life of faith and and good works, Lord, for our neighbors, for the sake of Your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.